God's word is given to us for our good. He's our covenant God and King, and these are the words he declares to us, so let's give our attention to its reading. Luke 13, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 9. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, And he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. The grass withers. The flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. It was about a month ago, I'm sure most of us probably know about it, but there was a pedestrian bridge, the campus of a university in Florida, that collapsed and it killed six people. It was a shocking event, probably because if you went back about 100 years or so, Things like this wouldn't be all that shocking, but today with the technology that we have, with the checks and the double checks and the triple checks and all of the mandating of safety regulations, which is really a good thing, as we see, uh, with all of that, it's shocking to see something like this actually take place. So people were talking about it, wondering about it. Kind of two different arenas in which all of the questions were dwelling. The first was, how did this happen? And just in in reality, physically, how did this bridge collapse? Who made the mistake? Can we trace it to a single mistake? Was it a series of mistakes? We want to know why it happened. On a deeper level, we, we ask questions like, how does something so senseless make any sense in today's world? Our thoughts fly to the spiritual, the theological arena. Where is God? What is the ultimate meaning in all of this? Why does this happen? When something like this happens, we know something is not right. That's evidence of the the image of God in us, this deep sense of justice. One of the parents of one of the students who died in the collapsing of the bridge said at a press conference, we want justice. We all want justice. But where will we find justice? Where will we find these ultimate answers? Does getting answers to how the bridge collapsed, who made the mistake along the way, will that ease the longing in the hearts of those parents? Well, no, it won't ultimately. When bridges collapse, the only thing that can make sense of it all is the person of Jesus Christ. For all human suffering must be answered in the one who can bring us beyond our suffering to a place of true blessedness. Suffering has many purposes in Scripture. 
And God tells us many different ones in his word. For instance, suffering produces righteousness in us. It sanctifies us. It refines us. Suffering makes us rely on God. It forces us to trust in him. It reveals his will. But in this text, in this passage, Jesus gives us another reason for how we make sense of suffering. It, is, uh, it reminds us of the necessity of repentance, and it leads us to repentance. It drives us to find our refuge in the God who forgives by his grace. Jesus does this by showing us um, through atrocities and calamities that it reminds us of something about this life and that this life is to serve the purposes of the next. And when we're reminded of our mortality, we're reminded of the nature of our sin-cursed existence in this world, we run to him and we're reminded of the need for repentance. It's been a little while since we've looked at Luke. So let's just retrace some of what's happened in chapter 12. Chapter 12 has several different takes on uh, this sort of, this one truth that runs through this whole chapter, and that is that we are to have an eternal perspective on things. Things like our reputation, our fears, our finances, our vocation, anxiety, and stress. All of these things are to be approached in light of eternity. And that's a perspective that we gain in Jesus. So he leads us to the end of the chapter 12, uh, end of chapter 12, where he tells us that uh, because of all of these things, we are to interpret the times correctly. And what he's doing is reminding them that in order to interpret the times, you need to interpret them through me. I am the Messiah who has come. Salvation has come in me. And so you need to heed my words. Jesus reminds them he has not come to give salvation indiscriminately uh, to everyone without any difference, but rather he has come to give it to those who trust in him and those who follow him. There's this eternal perspective then all through chapter 12. And chapter 13 opens without the scene changing. And these people come to Jesus and they tell him about these Galileans and this atrocity that has happened with Pilate. So the first idea then is making sense of suffering. They bring to Jesus this story about Galileans who uh, suffer this atrocity at the hands of Pilate. And what they're doing is they're trying to show Jesus that they are able to interpret the times correctly. Jesus says, you must know how uh, to see the signs of the times. I have come. Salvation has come. And so people are trying to show Jesus that they know how to do this. What are they saying as they bring him this horrible story? They're they're essentially saying that they believe that those who suffer in this kind of way, in this life, they ultimately deserved it somehow. So what is this story? Well, as we mentioned, this is what you might call an atrocity. This is a story that does not show up in any other historical records other than scripture. And so we can't know exactly what happened, but we can probably make sense of it just by what shows up here in this passage. Most likely what happened is that Pilate had soldiers enter the temple. It says that there were some Galileans there. Now remember, Galilee is up in the north. And so they have come down to Jerusalem to go into the temple for some reason Pilate doesn't like that or he wants to display his power somehow. Anyways, as they're in the temple and there are sacrifices being committed for them, probably through a priest, these soldiers enter the temple and they kill 
these Galileans. So it says the blood is mingled with their sacrifices. And so that's meant literally. And probably one of two things happened. Either as they were killed, their blood uh, sprinkled to, or their blood ran to the altar as somewhat of an accident. Or Pilate had instructed these soldiers to make sure that if they were having sacrifices offered in their name, that they make those sacrifices sacrilegious. They defile them. And so he instructed these, these soldiers to possibly bring the blood onto the altar, a blasphemous thing to do. So this story is brought to Jesus, and it would have shocked people, obviously. We don't have to imagine too hard to think about how much it would have shocked them. A couple months ago, there was a man in Texas who went into a gathered church gathering and started killing people. A few years ago, it happened in South Carolina. To get a sense of how shocking this might have been, uh, you could think of if someone were to do that at a communion service and were to take blood from the people he killed, bring it up to the communion table and mix it with the wine. It would have been a shocking thing, absolutely astounding uh, for people to hear about that. And as people are trying to process this, they're saying, okay, if people's lives are ended so mercilessly and it happens that the last religious observance of their life becomes defiled. How can you make sense of something like that happen, happening other than by saying that there was something they did, there was something that, some sin they committed that made them deserve it, that God would have allowed that to happen. But how does Jesus interpret the news? He says that just because something like this happens does not give you the liberty to think that these Galileans were worse sinners than anyone else. Rather, he says, it should remind us who, who do not suffer at that kind of atrocity, it should remind us to repent. For without repentance, a similar perishing awaits. Jesus will say that again later in the passage. Unless you repent, you too will perish. What is he saying? Is he saying unless you repent then you will suffer the same fate as these Galileans being killed in the temple? No. He's using that to draw a line of connection to a judgment that happens in the next life. He's using that as a picture to show the necessity of repentance and the necessity of repentance in escaping the judgment of God. But Jesus does not stop there, does he? He goes on to talk about a different kind of occurrence. It's not uh, the story with Pilate, it's something else. It's a tower that falls on 18 people. It's more of a tragedy than atrocity, or perhaps we might call it a calamity. The difference between these two kinds of events is what um, Bible scholars or theologians have called moral evil and natural evil. Moral evil is what Pilate did. It was an immoral act, something evil that was carried out by an act of will, killing other human beings in the temple, unjust, disregarding the law of God. Natural evil are these tragedies, these calamities that happen because we live in a sin-cursed world. You don't necessarily trace it to any act of will, but these are things that happen in a world that lives in the shadow of death and the fall. A bridge collapsing, a tsunami killing tens of thousands, a hurricane displacing hundreds of thousands, a plane crash. These are 
natural evils. So pay careful attention to what Jesus is doing here. It's really important that you see exactly what he's doing in order to understand uh, this passage. Notice that Jesus is not commenting on Pilate himself, right? He's talking about those who suffer because of the evil of Pilate, and then he's talking about those who suffer because of this calamity with the, the, the tragedy of the tower falling. That's important to notice because some people may come to this passage and say, Jesus is taking away all of the cause and effect relationships between sin and its consequences. He's not doing that. He's saying for people who, this, this is applicable to people who suffer because of natural evil and because of people who suffer because of moral evil. We may have all kinds of things that we would say about Pilate. And all kinds of evil, all kinds of consequences he might introduce into his life and into his family's life because of what he is doing. Jesus is not addressing that. This is about people who suffer at the hands of the evil of others, the immorality of others, and people who suffer because of natural evil. He's saying we cannot look at those who suffer by either kinds of these events and think that they deserved it somehow, that there was something that they directly did that deserved it. I think a lot of people think more along those lines in our world, but in the world of the Bible, this sort of was the way most people thought about it. You had to do something to deserve that. Job's friends thought this, didn't they? Job chapter 4, who being innocent has ever perished? When were the upright ever destroyed? You look at John chapter 9, for instance, not only are the Pharisees, but the disciples of Jesus come around this man who was born blind. They say to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Suffering in these ways is not attributable to some direct and particular sin that people, can, uh, uh, that people do in cases like this. Again, that doesn't mean that a lifetime of patterns of sinfulness, a lifetime of drug use would have no consequences, a lifetime of marital infidelity will have no consequences. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's a different question, isn't it? The instinct of our hearts that Jesus is showing us is that we would look at suffering like this and think that there possibly would be something that they did to deserve it. But Jesus teaches us that in a sin-cursed world, calamities and atrocities will happen. And the reason if we must point to one is what does Jesus do? He paints with a broad brush. The reason if we must point to one is that each and every human being is culpable is responsible for the fact that we live in a world that is cursed. We live in a world that dwells in the midst of the shadow of death. And so what Jesus teaches us once again is that calamities, just like atrocities, are to lead us to repentance. Why? Because they remind us of the culpability that we all share for the world in which we live. Calvin says that all of the calamities of this world are testimonies of the wrath of God, but they are not the testimonies of the wrath of God against an individual or particular sin. We've seen that happen when sometimes tsunamis come and sweep over a country and there will be someone who goes even on a a Christian television station and says that this is signs of the wrath of God against that part of the world. It's wrong to think like that. 
When things like this happen, we are to be reminded of the culpability we all share for atrocities and calamities and the world in which we have brought ourselves through our sinfulness. When we see these things happen, we should, re- we should remember, be reminded that we are just as liable to fall into the same situation. And we have to ask ourselves, are we ready to meet the God who made us? That's what it comes down to. Ask yourself that question. Am I ready to meet the God who made us? What's the key to the formula? Repentance. Repentance is the key to, for- to the formula. Why? Because in repentance, it encapsulates all the things that we need to know about the ultimate meaning of this life. It encapsulates the malady of the condition of our hearts, doesn't it? It recognizes that we are sinful. Repentance also recognizes the solution that's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it also encapsulates the transformation of the heart that the gospel brings about. We talk about repentance, you can talk about the three C's of repentance. Contrition, that is knowing your sin and knowing how repugnant it is in the face of a holy God. And being grieved over your sin, having sorrow over your sin. So contrition, then confession. That's apprehending the mercy of God in Christ, understanding that Christ provides forgiveness. And then change. Contrition, confession, and change. There's a a catechism that says we are to turn from our sin unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. To repent is to, is to say to God that you fully intend to turn from your sin and to walk in his ways. And so ask yourself, have you repented? Have you repented? Have you come to this realization of the evil of your sin, the solution of Christ, the transformation that comes about through the gospel? And then not only have you repented, but... Do you have this mentality with the suffering of this life, with with atrocities, with calamities? Do they remind you of our own culpability of the sin-cursed world in which we live? Do they remind you of the need to cling to Christ and to understand the solution that he gives to us in the gospel? That only in Christ true justice will be found and that we are to be found clinging to him and resting in him until the day that our God And our king calls us home. I'd like to take a few moments and apply this logic. Because it's very important. The lesson Jesus teaches us is very important. And it plagues many people. So perhaps you've been faced with questions like this. Someone in your family gets cancer. Someone dies in a horrible accident. Someone is the victim of a horrible and senseless crime or an act of violence. And you ask yourself, was there a sin in my life or in my family's life that brought the judgment of God upon us? Have you ever thought that? That in some way it comes down to divine karma and God will keep you away from calamities and atrocities if you are sufficiently righteous. That's what Job's friends thought, isn't it? That's what they thought. That's exactly what the disciples and the Pharisees thought about the man who was born blind. In reality, you can look at almost any other worldview, any other faith system outside of Jesus Christ, and that is what they teach. Let your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. Buddhism teaches each life, each successive life is a payment for the previous life. You keep on paying until you stop desiring, until you stop suffering. 
all other, the, the, all the pantheistic religions, all of the monotheistic religions, this is what they say. And it shows the transcendence of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because in Jesus Christ, you have forgiveness offered to those who do not deserve it. Can you imagine living your life thinking that God will only forgive you, he will only redeem you if you deserve it? That's why the gospel is an answer that no one else can give. That's why the gospel stands above and transcends all other answers to the meaning of life. I'd like to illustrate this point with a story. Painful, not easy to hear. There's a man whose name was Mark. He had generally lived as a a good Christian man, but he had allowed his life to spiral into regular viewing of pornography. He used it as a way to let off steam when he felt like he had had a bad day. He was the father of a wonderfully accomplished young man in his mid-twenties who was a pilot instructor and a dedicated young Christian man. On a fateful day, he he dropped his son off at the airport uh, to give a flying lesson. And on the way home, Mark distinctly remembers arguing with God about what he planned to do later that night in front of his screen. He was not ready to give up his addiction. and He was ready to argue with God about it. He returned home that evening to a nervous wife who had heard of a plane crash, but details were still coming out. Within minutes, a sheriff's policeman showed up at their door to give them the most horrifying news they could have ever imagined. Their beloved son had died in a plane crash. Mark wrote to a well-known theologian, he says this, Did my addiction to pornography kill my son? Did God take him from me as payment? Did I kill him. Can you imagine the pain, the horror? And what does one say? What does one say? So Mark goes on to say that he realized something. He says, I became consumed with the guilt of my sin against God that day. I became acutely aware of my wretchedness and the need to fall at his feet and seek forgiveness. The theologian goes on to to write to Mark and tell him about what Jesus says in John 9 about the man who was born blind, that natural evil is not the effect of any one sin or any set of sins or any particular sin. To view it that way is to miss the point. But the point that Mark ought to see is that through his son's death, now there are many purposes that God has behind that kind of a situation. You can't exhaust all of the things that God is doing, but one purpose that he has is that through his son's death, he was brought face to face with what was killing him on the inside. And that's what our mortality ought to do. And when you see atrocities and calamities, you are to be reminded that sin will kill you on the inside. And you need to run to Jesus. And you need to trust in him. He saw and he realized the supremacy of Christ. He saw and he realized the repugnance of his sin. That which he clung to in his flesh became nauseating to him. When the unthinkable happens, what must we do? We must let it remind us that this life is not forever. And that we have all equally run away from God. And that in order to escape that which we deserve, we must run to Christ. That's the proper response to calamities and atrocities. That those who suffer them did not do anything directly to deserve it. This world lies under the wrath of God's curse. And so we ought to run to the God who forgives us 
by grace. Psalm 79 captures this mentality, looking inward, being reminded of our own sin, our own culpability. Psalmist, the psalmist is looking out, he's seeing God's people uh, being killed, being taken out, taken out of their homeland, envisioning, in a sense, the temple being destroyed. And, and the psalmist says, God, forgive us, atone for our sins, cleanse us. That's the mentality that we ought to have. Let suffering, whether it happens to you or you see it in others, drive you to Jesus. Jesus is reminding us that this life is temporary. And that is what Jesus teaches us in this parable at the end. It's, it's, it shows, in a sense, both sides. That if someone is suffering, that's not the direct result of any particular sin in their life. And then conversely, if your life continues without suffering, that is not a sign of God's direct blessing upon your life. Jesus says the time that is given to you is given to you so that you might interpret the times through Jesus Christ and see salvation that is given in the gospel. Romans chapter 2, Paul says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be Revealed. This tree is unfruitful. And the direct application of this tree is Israel. Israel was planted in the vineyard of God, giving everything they should have needed the word of God, the promises, the covenants, God's abiding presence. And what do they do? They continually run from Him. And prophet after prophet comes and says, You need to repent. You need to turn to the Lord. They ignore Him. And the, the gardener in this parable talks to the owner of the vineyard, says, Give it one more year. Give it one last chance. And the life of Jesus stands sort of as the last chance that Israel was given. But they use the patience of God to do what? To kill the son. To kill the one who was sent as the embodiment of God's mercy and grace. They show themselves to be hardened to God's mercy and to God's grace. Unable to interpret the times through Christ. So, we take a look at this parable. We ask ourselves, have we interpreted the times correctly through Jesus Christ. Some of you may have seen last week, by the way, you, 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 things like this come up in the word of God. You look at a text like this and, and you think about you know, how, you, how you teach it and you realize that with all the information we have in the world today, how many different situations I had to, to talk about with the atrocities and the calamities, uh, the, the, the chemical warfare that we've seen in the last couple of weeks, and how do you make sense of all that, and everything that's going on, you just say, wow, wow, what, what a world in which we live, and uh, how grateful we are for the gospel. But some of you may have seen that there was a, a horrible calamity, again, that happened in Canada. A junior hockey team made up of um, teenagers, early 20s, um, this bus was involved in a bus in a crash that killed around half of the people that were involved. I think 16 were killed in total. Um, happened late last week. Another bridge collapses. There's a reformed pastor in Canada who uh, was, was writing on it after it happened. And uh, he wrote that the thing that haunted him the most was that it was young people who had died. And what is it that often, most often defines youthful rigor? And energy. It's a feeling that you will live forever, forever, that death is the furthest thing from your mind, and that you have all of the time in the world. This pastor made the point that there may have been many people on that bus who 
perhaps knew the story of Jesus, figured that he was probably the answer to life's deepest questions, the meaning of life, but they had put off repenting and giving their lives to him because they were so young, because they had their whole lives in front of them. And so he wrote this. He said, it is my prayer that this tragedy serves as a sobering wake-up call to young people across the nation and across the world. It is my prayer that it will stir many to consider that the call to the gospel is urgent, that it must be heeded today. God promises you salvation now and heaven forever if you'll turn to him, but he does not promise you tomorrow. Did you hear that? God promises you heaven and salvation now, forever, if you'll turn to him, but he does not promise you tomorrow. So if you were to interpret the times correctly, How could you justify living like God promises you tomorrow and he does not promise you salvation and heaven forever now? And so I say to you, and J.C. Ryle, a reformed minister who would bring this up from time to time, we, we may live in a Christian context and all these cultural things about Christianity, you may sit underneath the preaching of the word, you may hear about all of that, you may see the sacraments and observe the sacraments, but the question comes down to whether or not you see the supremacy of Christ and you heed the call upon him to turn from your sin and repent of your sin and find him to be your refuge and your strength. If you look at verse 8 of this passage The gardener says, leave it alone to the owner. Leave the tree alone. That that phrase is very clearly an allusion to what Jesus says on the cross. If we were to translate it literally, it would say, forgive it. Forgive the tree. We go forward to the cross and Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Let the love of the advocate, let the love of the Savior fill your heart With love. Fill your heart with sorrow over your sin. Realize that your continued life may be a product of the long suffering of God, and that unless you interpret your life through the lens of Christ, you will be like that barren fig tree that was about to be cut down. I trust that many of us, most of us, are clinging to Jesus. But even still, for us, don't we need to hear and be reminded? that we need to battle to make sure that we are clinging to him and always looking to him as our sufficiency, as our salvation. We see atrocities, we see calamities, and so often it's, it's easy to take the wrong perspective on those things. Let it remind you of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When bridges collapse, run to Jesus. When bridges collapse, trust in him. And never go anywhere else but in the arms of your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your Son to walk upon this sin-cursed world. And to be the one, the righteous one, who fulfilled the law, who paid the price. Father, many things that happen in this life that we don't understand... Father, we thank you that you give us this wor- these words that are challenging and yet also immensely comforting. And so, Father, we pray that as we face atrocities and calamities, Father, that we would understand what Jesus has taught us here 
and that it would force us to see our mortality, that it would force us to look inward, that it would force us to be thankful for the price that was paid, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from every stain of sin. And Father, we ask that you would work in the hearts of all of us here uh, to tune our hearts to understand those truths, to love Jesus more because of it, to perhaps turn to Jesus for the first time or once again after a long time of walking with a heart that was hardened. And so, Father, we pray that you, by your Spirit, would cause all of that to happen in our hearts to your glory. Pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's respond together and sing on the back of our insert.